0: Hello and welcome to the Nomiki Show. I am Nomiki Konst and we are five days away from election day. The Republican Senate rallies to the defense of the innocent billionaire Rupert Murdoch. Come on, man. Just a few days before the election, that hearing with the tech bros was a disgrace. That great constitutionalist Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, well, he ripped a new one to Twitter founder Jack Dorsey because he won't let Rupert's tabloid, the New York Post, spew their Hunter Biden fables all over Twitter. Where have you been, Senator Cruz? Huh? Do you understand that Twitter and these other social media platforms have been doing this to us on the left for years? Read this terrific piece just out in Mother Jones. Can we post a link to that? After Trump was elected, Facebook tinkered with its algorithm to lower the temperature and make its users feel better. But they discovered their attempt cut into the audience for right-wing sites like Breitbart. So they redid it. And this time it undercut left-leaning sites like Mother Jones. The magazine's reporters say that they have discovered Facebook even had a PowerPoint slide Showing how much Breitbart and Mother Jones would be affected, A common refrain one former Facebook staffer told Mother Jones was that, quote, "We can't do that to Breitbart." Mother Jones says, "The new algorithm cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars in lost ads and subscribers. I am not surprised by that. Let me say this in simpler language: Facebook, knowingly, helped Breitbart and hurt Mother Jones. They made the very content decisions they claim not to make. And one more thing. Of course, there's no comparison between Breitbart and Mother Jones. Mother Jones is a legacy, award-winning magazine that has actual fact-checkers. Breitbart is, well, not that at all. Now I wish the story of how Mother Jones got screwed by Facebook was a one-off, but of course it's not. It's life in the media for those of us on the left. Just the other day, Jacobin Magazine had a video blocked on Facebook. Why? Because they mentioned Marx in the promotion of their weekends podcast, okay? And of course, right, wing, uh, right now, you are watching the show through YouTube, owned by Alphabet, which also owns Google. They have the power at any moment to tamp down whatever, or black us out. Uh, they boost corporate media companies like MSNBC, Fox, and The Hill. Now, this is nothing new. We, the left, working people, have always had to fight to be heard in this country. McCarthyism wasn't a general effort to smear anti-establishment voices. It was a targeted attack on the American left. Working people. Unions. What's frightening now is that the kind of power Joe McCarthy wielded in the 50s is in private hands today which is why even applying the word censorship here doesn't make sense. Censoring is what the government does, preventing citizens from speaking, writing, having their say. So what I wanna show you real quick, let's show that clip uh, of of Esha. A friend of our show and and the movement, uh, Esha Legal, who hosts a history podcast, posted kind of a snarky comment about McCarthy and then her page was suspended. Can we show that real quick? What we face now is massive, uncontrolled corporate power over what information makes it to you, power that has been amplified by the hands-off approach our government has taken towards these internet giants. As summed up in Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which explicitly absolves them from even the responsibilities that a traditional publisher had to show, media mogul Henry Luce had enormous power. But he also had to take responsibility for what he published in Time Magazine, good, bad, and ugly. But Mark Zuckerberg has even more power and wealth than Henry Lewis and not an ounce of responsibility for what appears to be on his platform. The neoliberal libertarian cabals that run the big tech companies like like working people even less than they like Trump. So don't kid yourself about Twitter hassling New York Post. That's a cocktail party virtue, virtue signal. Rupert Murdoch, we will find a way to be heard. I mean, he owns Fox News and Wall Street Journal. In the meantime, we are being strangled. But we haven't been silenced yet, and with your help, we will never be. There will always be pamphleting and invisible ink, I suppose. All right. We have a great show for you today. We have Jonathan Daniel Wells joining us to discuss New York's legacy of slavery. Then we have Rep. Rab here and Rachel Gilmer on to discuss voter suppression tactics in Pennsylvania and in Florida. Those are two states that may decide this election, of course. But first, if you are not already aware, we have this great summit on Friday. Matriarch Pack uh, is organizing the summit. Matriarch is an organization that supports working class women running for Congress. Uh, there have been some great wins. We're featuring, we are featuring Cory Bush, Sarah Nelson from the flight attendants workers, Barbara Smith, who coined uh, the phrase. She's a Nobel Prize nominee, and she coined the phrase intersectionalism. Uh, Kate Albright-Hanna, a uh, documentary filmmaker, Marquita Bradshaw, who is the Senate nominee in Tennessee, Francesca Fiorentini, a friend of the show, uh, she's a comedian and an activist, uh, and a host, Tara Hauska, who is a, a Native rights advocate and is an attorney for Native lands, Jane McAlevey, probably the best organizer in the world, Eileen Flanagan from Choose Democracy, Nabila Islam, uh, Melanie DiRigo, and many, many more. Really, really interesting slate. We're going to be talking about some transformational issues. Go get your tickets right now. You can register uh, at that link on board. 27 bucks a ticket starting rate. Obviously, if you want to be more generous, that is very, you know, people. we appreciate that. Uh, but it's going to be a great, great lineup and a great way to kick off the GOTV efforts. All right. Now, here are some of the news stories at the top of my feed. On Wednesday, President Trump reiterated the hope that the election will be called... And votes will no longer be counted after November 3rd. In other words, late ballots coming from the key battleground state of Pennsylvania will have no effect on the outcome. Trump is urging the courts to prevent vote counting counting after next Tuesday in a move that Brian Kloss of Washington Post uh, called a, quote, dangerously authoritarianism tactic. Uh, Those who have not yet been mailed their ballots should drop them off or vote in person where it is safe to do so. Let's make that very clear. You have a ballot, don't mail it in now. You gotta go drop it it off at the mail-in ballot location or the board of election, depending on your state. So go check that out. Former leader of the Labor Party and Democratic Socialist Jeremy Corbyn has been suspended from labor. This comes after Corbyn's response to a watchdog report claiming consistent failure by Corbyn's Labour Party to discuss and address accusations of anti-Semitism. Corbyn has emphasized that while he and his party have always stood against anti-Semitism and all forms of racism, quote, the scale of the problem was dramatically overstated for political reasons. Earlier this year, we learned that Parliamentary Labour Party is essentially sabotaged Corbyn's campaign for prime minister this is more of the same from the anti socialist element of labor. I'm going to go over his uh, statement real quick. I think this is really important um, and it's not being discussed enough. He said, quote, anti Semitism is absolutely abhorrent, wrong, and responsible for some of humanity's greatest crimes. As leader of the Labor Party, I was always determined to eliminate all forms of racism and root out the cancer of anti Semitism. I have campaigned in support of Jewish peoples and communities my entire life, and I will continue to do so. The EHRC's report shows that when I became labor leader in 2015, the party's process for handling complaints were not fit for purpose. Reform was installed by an obstructive party bureaucracy. But for, from 2018, Jenny Formby and the new NEC that supported my leadership made substantial improvement, improvements, making it much easier and swifter to remove anti Semites. My team acted to speed up. Not hinder the process. Anyone claiming there is no anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is wrong. Of course, there is, as there is throughout society, and sometimes it is voiced by people who think of themselves as on the left. Now, this is really important because, um, you know, I was, I, I, I went and interviewed. Um, I covered the Labour conference in two thousand seventeen, and I actually interviewed uh, Jeremy Corbyn, who who had just lost, uh, just lost the nomination um, for prime minister, or just lost the, he was going into, eventually running again. And um, of course, he lost against Boris Johnson. But uh, I talked to him about reform in the Labour Party, because I had just been going through the process of the reform committee at the DNC. And I knew that they had a similar uh, committee, a commission established to reform the Labour Party to address these issues. And it's very interesting to see the similarities uh, between the neoliberal elements, you know, the Clintonian part of the party in the DNC, and of course the Tony Blairites uh, in in the Labour Party, who really stalled out any reforms, delayed processes, you know, put their thumb on the scale wherever they could if they were controlling committees. I think this is a really important conversation to have in the movement and reforming parties, um, because of course the parties do decide who. Becomes a nominee and what the process is, and we have to be a little bit more alert on what their tactics are. So I'm really happy he's bringing that up. All right, guys, before you brunch, <laughs> this is a new segment that we are starting uh, because you know the movement is is moving along and we could get some wins, but we don't already. You know we don't want to go out and brunch. So before you brunch, progressive groups are winning for Biden in Michigan. Biden has no ground game in Michigan. Sources have reported. From appearances by Rashida Tlaib to canvassing and phone banking efforts from leftist groups like Detroit Action, Michigan Liberation, and Mothering Justice, this is your reminder that liberals don't want to do the work to turn out the vote, but progressives are the ones who, underst- who best understand Trump's threat and are you know, used to organizing and want to rally their communities against them. So before you brunch liberals, make sure to hit the ground. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll be right back uh, after this segment, a little break, and we're going to be talking about slavery in New York. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. So I'm really interested in this topic because – well, first off, as a New Yorker, I'm really interested. I think the history of New York is is fascinating and jarring. Uh, the more you look into it, it, was one of the first things I did when I moved to New York because I spent like a year reading books on like the history of New York City. Um, our next guest is Jonathan Daniel Wells. He's a professor and author, a history professor at the University of Michigan, and the author of The Kidnapping Club, Wall Street, Slavery, and Resistance on the Eve of the Civil War. Thank you for joining us, Jonathan. appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So I guess, first off, um, what inclined you to write this book uh, at this time?
1: Well, I think we all know that New York City today is an amazing place, right? It has uh, this pluralistic culture. It tends to be very progressive politically. But what I think a lot of people didn't realize uh, was that the city harbors this much bleaker past. And I think that's true of America more generally, but I wanted to focus in on New York City as kind of a microcosm of that story and to get people to realize that yes, freedom and liberty are part of the American story, but so too is the n- denial of that liberty and how important that is to our f- uh, founding as well.
0: So of course, um, uh, you know, on, on, on the eve of Civil War, the North, we know our basic history, the North was against and, and against slavery and the South was was for it. but. Uh, the harbor of New York, you, meant, you said harbor. I thought you were going to go into the New York Harbor, was the gateway for Caribbean slaves to enter uh, right near Wall Street. I mean, is, is that not how New York really started to flourish, was off of that slave
1: trade? Absolutely. And that's one of the most important points, I think, uh, of the book, which is that New York City, as I say in the book, is the most pro-slavery and pro-South city north of the Mason-Dixon line. And I don't say that lightly. Uh, and, and the reason is because both the, the harbor, as you just mentioned, as well as the city streets uh, in and around Wall Street and lower Manhattan, they were all subject to uh, police violence against black people. They were subject uh, to this almost lawless expression of white dominance and white supremacy. And the reason why uh, the police and uh, judges and lawyers and uh, slave catchers who uh, are quite rightly called the kidnapping club are able to operate with impunity is because New York is just this very Southern city uh, in many ways. And it's really antithetical I think to the way we think about the city today. So you're absolutely right. I mean, the Harbor was used uh, in the transatlantic slave trade which was supposed to have been ended long before in the early 1800s, and nonetheless really continued all the way to the Civil War. And it was a particularly bad in the 1850s, just before the Civil War, when uh, New York's complicated and busy, uh, chaotic harbor, where hundreds of ships would come in and out every day, uh, was a place where it was kind of easy to uh, engage in the slave trade because you know, pretty much the, the city wharves uh, were too busy to notice
0: really so <laughs> that's fascinating so you had police and 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 these kidnapping uh these folks kidnapping black people um i just why new york like i, I understand that they, the slave trade continued, but why what was so special about new york why was why was new york able to get away with it and not other parts of the northeast
1: yeah that's a great question and there were uh incidences of kidnapping in places like philadelphia But not to the extent uh, that we see in New York in the early 1800s. And really the reason is because much of Wall Street's wealth, uh, the banking industry, the financiers, uh, the credit lending agencies, uh, the merchants and, um, you know, life insurance companies and insurance companies make a tremendous amount of money off of the cotton trade with the South. Mm -hmm. So all those hundreds of thousands of bales that are being grown uh, by African-Americans under enslavement uh, is being baled up. And ultimately, it's going to head to places like the UK, you Mm -hmm. know, to textile mills in um, Liverpool and Manchester or to New England. But Mm -hmm. before they get there, all of this has to be negotiated and facilitated by rich New Yorkers. And so they know exactly where their wealth comes from, in large part, and it's based upon, in no small part, uh, the cotton trade with the slave South. And so that makes New Yorkers very sympathetic to the South. It makes them very sympathetic to slavery. And by the way, I think it's worth mentioning. You know, this is not an intention to diminish the horrors of Southern slavery by saying, "Oh, look at New York, right? It's it's uh, you know almost as bad." Nothing. Uh, a historian could do would take away from the horrendous nature of slavery as it existed in the American South for two and a half centuries. But it is to say um, that, you know, in places where we kind of least expect it, America's uh, evolving, its uh, emergence as a world power, both financial and political, is tied in, in complicated ways that we're really only beginning to understand to this system of, of Southern slavery, even if you weren't in South Carolina or Texas.
0: So why, why did they end up coming out against slavery in the end, if so much of their financial interests were tied to the South and, and New York?
1: Well, they didn't um, in New York City. Uh, New York City, interestingly enough, remains a pro-South uh, city all the way through the Civil War. They vote. New York City votes against Lincoln. Uh, it votes against uh, the suffrage of Black people in 1860 at the same time that they vote against Lincoln, and all throughout the war, I mean, you're right, there is some some truth to the fact that New Yorkers do come around to supporting the war much more so uh, than they would have um, before, but New York City remains all throughout the Civil War and afterwards a complicated place where, yes, there, you're absolutely right, there were people who had come to believe in the Union cause, including mm-hmm. Uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, but there were a lot of other New Yorkers who resisted that tooth and nail and one of the most famous examples of that is the draft riots that happened mm-hmm. in July of eighteen sixty three so um,
0: who was the governor at the time?
1: Uh, a, a man named Horatio Seymour uh, is the governor Governor of New York in eighteen sixty and through mo- most of the of the Civil War era.
0: And so, at the same time, you have upstate New York, where there's just tremendous organizing happening. Um, uh, the Underground Railroad, of course, moved through upstate New York. How did he balance this this complicated state, which you know I think today you'd think of it in reverse, but hmm, maybe not. Who knows? <laughs> um, meaning, upstate having a very different culture than 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 the city. Uh, but I mean, how did he manage these this dichotomy, this uh, complicated scenario of his state?
1: He was a, a pretty conservative Democrat, um, but he was able to uh, keep hold of the city while also getting a sufficient number of people in the rural upstate areas uh, to to support him. And actually, the city and the state really toggle back and forth uh, between, you know, the, the two parties at the time uh, in the 1850s, the Whigs and the Democrats, and then the Republicans and the Democrats. And... Um, It's interesting you mentioned the difference, potentially, between the city and uh, upstate New York, because today, of course, we all know that the real divisions in American politics is between rural and urban, right? So if you have an urban area of the South or the North or the West, you know, they tend to vote for uh, Democrats. But rural uh, Michiganders—I live in Detroit, so, you know, rural Michiganders are as likely to wield Confederate flags— as uh, rural Alabamians. So that division that we we kind of uh, have ingrained in our own politics today was strangely reversed in Mm -hmm. the years before the Civil War because a lot of upstate New Yorkers, as you you mentioned, uh, they were uh, anti-slavery. They avidly uh, pursued the Underground Railroad and and proclaimed their belief in, in black freedom, if not black equality whereas New York City was the one that was the conservative reactionary uh, city politically in comparison to the rest of the state. So it it really is different from the way we think about politics today.
0: Hmm. Um, So let's talk a little bit about Tammany Hall, because you do touch on Tammany Hall. and, And I mean, from what I understand about Tammany Hall, it was as complicated. And, you know, of course, there's corruption involving Tammany Hall. But there was this other side of it, which was folks needed jobs and immigrants you know whether jewish immigrants italian immigrants irish immigrants greek immigrants they needed jobs too and tammany hall represented that part of the party um politicking in in, in new york especially um uh downtown inside sort or of, sort of fighting back against like the the oligarch types in new york so what was their role in all this
1: that's a, that's a really important question, because Tammany Hall was really closely associated with the Democratic Party. And, you know, again, different from the way we think about uh, politics, and particularly partisan politics today, the Democrats in this period of American history, throughout most of the 19th century, they're the conservative party, meaning uh, that the Democrats are opposed to racial progress, racial equality, gen- generally opposed to black civil rights, now, of course, that's gonna change in the 20th century, but that's the way it is in, in the 19th century, and the Republicans are the ones who are, uh, to some extent at least, pushing for black civil rights. And Tammany Hall is the powerhouse of the Democratic Party in New York City. And it's important to realize that you're absolutely right that you know, sort of later in the 19th, 19th century, you're gonna get Greeks and Polish people, Italians, but mostly, Tammany Hall represents what they consider white uh, New Yorkers, um, mostly working class Irish, uh, but also, you know, they're open to German Americans uh, becoming a part of their political um, entity, but they don't see Italians or Greeks or Southeastern or, or um, Eastern Europeans as part of that process. So. Yeah, you're right. It's a complicated story, but Tammany Hall is absolutely at at the center of New York City power. And on the one hand, they represent the working class and all of the 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 needs that the working class has. The Irish working class. It's it's a terrible place to be a member of the underclass because the tenement housing is unsafe and it's unhealthy, unsanitary. The wages are low. Uh, There is some you know very little protection for you on the job uh, but at the same time because they're so beholden to protecting their own interests they see black people and any other people from say southeastern or eastern europe as potentially competitors so at the same time that they have these working class politics they're also deeply racist
0: deeply racist Jeez. but you know if if new york at least early tammany hall when it was more white um or what we we espouse to be white today. <clears throat> I don't know if Irish considered themselves white back then, but um, but if 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 how would they tie into slavery? Though I mean, it's not like they could organize slaves. Um, it's so you know, were they automatically out of that process? I'm just I'm just very curious how like the working class politics rubbed up against this very Wall Street driven pro- politics that was exploiting slaves.
1: Well, it's, it's no different today when many of the white working class around the country are uh, seeing in Trump, who's a, a supposedly at least a multi billionaire, uh, as someone who represents their interests. I mean, it's been part of this, this working class dilemma in American history for a long time. And that's why, I think mean, that's a, another reason why I wanted to write this book. I, I think you, you had asked me that at the beginning of our conversation. And uh, yeah, trying to understand the motivations uh, of the white working class was a key part of why I wanted to delve into this. And it really comes down to fear of economic competition, fear of competition for jobs, and the notion that if you're going to elevate black people to citizenship, to equality, political equality, social equality, that, that somehow has to take away from them. You know, like the pie is, is so, uh, you know, well-defined that uh, one piece out uh, means that they they will lose what little protection they have for their jobs, what little protection they have uh, for their housing. So it's an interesting uh, comparison uh, to sort of white working class politics today. But I also, if you don't mind, I, I, w- I just want to add, you know, it, it, it's just a story also about Black resistance, right? Right. So, you know, again, comparisons to di- to today, but there's some um, some really interesting people, including David Ruggles, who, you know, for lack of a better word, is kind of the hero of this story, uh, who really fight against racial injustice, against the kidnapping club, against the political and, and um, city authority machinations to try to take away their civil rights. Mm-hmm. So as, as bleak and demoralizing as the story can be, as we you know, approach the election, um, you know, we also can take heart in that there are people who fight back and they matter too.
0: Um, today, you know, there's this, the reason I ask about the politics is just, there's this um, this resistance of city leaders across the country. Uh, but, you know, Mayor de Blasio ran as progressive Tale of Two Cities, talked about his black children, talked about uh, the, the racial disparity in New York. This is what he ran on and really what made him um, different from the from the other uh candidates in the race. And as a result, he's had um he's been able to mobilize the the New York City black vote which, you know, in New York demographics really matter. Like it's there's still a lot of that kind of contained within New York City politics. And yet <laughs> he has been absolutely beholden to the New York police unions and to a point where many people even say like what do they have on him because it's just it's such an embarrassment to him. His approval ratings have gone down. Um, this is, as you said, a you know, pretty much progressive city, more or less, uh, with exception to maybe Wall Street. But um, there's a legacy here with the, with the police unions, and there's a legacy of the police department in New York. And of course, the makeup is probably very different today than it was back then, but can you kind of help us track um, the kidnapping club and how the police dealt with slaves uh, in New York in in the Civil War era to today,
1: sure, absolutely. Uh, I'll try to I'll try to be brief because it's you know it's a long story. But in essence, uh, there's this group of judges, as I said, and, and some lawyers and police officers. There's a couple of really nefarious ones named uh, Tobias Boudinot and Daniel Nash. The a couple of really uh, real pieces of work, and um, you know they're uh, arresting black women, children, and men off the streets of New York. And um, the whole system, the political system and the legal system is geared toward uh, basically assuming that any black person who's arrested as a, a runaway is in fact a runaway, whether they're born free or not. And this is another part of this American history that I think sometimes we lose track of if, if we, we don't understand the denial of freedom and how central it is to our our national story, because it's right there in the original constitution. It's the fugitive slave clause. And it says that if somebody makes uh, their way to freedom in New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Cleveland, wherever, uh, that doesn't mean they're free. Instead, what the constitution says, our nation's founding document says that those people have to be returned to to, uh, their... Their owner essentially you know the the person from whom they escaped um but you know there's it's really hard to tell if somebody's a runaway or somebody's born free and uh that doesn't make the the fugitive slave renditions any more morally acceptable but the point is that you know the kidnapping club and this is by the way uh the term that david ruggles the, the famous black activist kind of like the frederick Douglass of new york city Uh, calls them. He's the one who calls them the New York Kidnapping Club because he wants to make public all their their, um, horrific machinations. So uh, the Kidnapping Club doesn't care if you're born free. They don't care if you're uh, in fact a runaway slave. They use the Constitution and then subsequent laws uh, to arrest anybody that they feel like, really. And that means that black uh, freedom for everyone in New York is extremely precarious. Hmm. And it's one of those things where, if you're a black family living, say, in Seneca Village, which was the the, the great black neighborhood that was decimated and cleared away to make Central Park, um, and you got this uh, uh, knock on your door in the middle of the night, uh, you knew that uh, there was danger behind that door. and for decades, it really made the experience of freedom for black people in New York um, extremely fragile.
0: Uh, Did this all change after they were granted their universal freedom?
1: Uh, To some extent, it it changes even before that. Um, So one of the things that happens uh, sort of in the middle to the end of of my book is that New York State, which is now in control of uh, sort of people sympathetic to lack civil rights, guys like William Henry Seward, for example, who was a politician. And uh, they pass a law that says you have to have a jury trial if you're going to accuse somebody of being a runaway slave. So before that, you know, there were a number of instances in which uh, this police officer, Tobias Boudinot, along with his his buddy Daniel Nash they arrest somebody for being a runaway they take him before the city co- uh, recorder Richard Riker who is it's kind of like um, Justice of the peace, kind of and they uh, for
0: Riker's Island <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah well you know I, I've been trying to unearth all that just as an aside and yeah I think the point is I don't think it actually comes from Richard Riker's name per, per se but um, you know certainly the Dutch past of New York where the name Riker would have come from the point is that you know they're all complicit anyway. So whether or not it's actually his his name on Rikers Island, um, doesn't take away the fact that you know, he participated in the cheapening of, of black freedom in New York before the Civil War. And um, you know they could do that in a couple of hours. You know hmm. Riker would would declare, okay, this guy is not uh, Joseph Collier like he says; he's really Abraham Gosley. And I declare him a slave. And before anybody knew, before the guy's family even knew what had happened, it, he's already on his on, on the way to, to bondage. So the jury trial helped that a lot. Because, yeah, now you had to have, you know, you had to sit down and present evidence and say, you know, I was here, you know, in, in 1830, long before you claim I had run away. I was here in New York, so I can't possibly be the person you claim so yeah, it's you know the the legal part of this is a big important part of the story.
0: I mean, what is as a New Yorker, I it's so it just stop and frisk under 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 Mayor Bloomberg. You know his resistance to end stop and frisk, where black kids or anybody uh, could be stopped and completely you know frisked, found something on you, and locked up. Um, you know ending cash bail. I mean, there's so many systemic issues in new york city and obviously across the country but in new york city where you know for disclosure i ran for office in new york um we you know the city council is supposedly progressive the the mayor is supposedly progressive the state senators are supposedly progressive yet we deal with these issues in such a in such a band-aid sort of way way past they've way past public opinion like public opinion is against all of these tactics and yet we still find ourselves um, facing the police unions and special interests that are resistant to uh, to any sort of you know reform or or uh, shutting down of jails, it's really concerning hearing um, the similarities and just how similar <laughs> uh, these tactics are to today.
1: Yeah, you can get pretty demoralized, um, particularly when you realize that you know children were the victims of this kidnapping. There's one story in the book about Henry Scott who was 7 years old sitting at a school desk practicing his letters in the African free mm-hmm. school and you know in walks uh, a police officer and a white man claiming to to be his master and you can imagine you know that upsets the whole classroom and children are running in every direction and you know the stories of children are especially troubling but you're you're absolutely right you know the whole story of uh, history, not really repeating itself, but not necessarily changing as much as we would like yeah. either, uh, is pretty painful. But again, I, I think that's why it's necessary to resist, right? It's, it's necessary to fight back. And that's why I, I found David Ruggles so interesting, is because, you know, he's kind of this imperfect hero. He's a guy who rubs people the wrong way, right? He's a radical agitator. So he's, you know, he's kind of a pain in the neck. And that's not just to you know people in the police force or in city politics or city recorder Richard Riker, but he actually you know ends up uh, angering his own uh, fellow black civil rights activists. But you know that's because he is tireless. He is everywhere at once and he resists the illegitimacy and the injustice and the immorality of this system. And I think that's where, as demoralizing as the comparisons can be, that, you know, we take some solace in the bravery uh, of people who sacrificed a lot to just um, to fight back.
0: Jonathan Daniel Wells, uh, fascinating history, fascinating book. Can we put that up on screen again real quick? Uh, Definitely go check out his book at your independent bookstores, ordering them online if you can, that's the best place to go. Uh, The Kidnapping Club, Wall Street, Slavery and Resistance on the eve of the Civil War. Thank you so much for coming on and you know, really, really fascinating conversation.
1: Thanks so much for having me, I appreciate it.
0: Of course. All right, we're gonna be back uh, in two seconds to talk about Florida and Pennsylvania and the voter suppression, (laughs) Uh, not anything new, that is happening there right now uh, on the eve of this election. Another civil war, not quite the same, but a different type of civil war. Welcome back to the Nomiky Show, guys. We are five days away from the election. Ugh! Like, just the energy. I just want to like do some jumping jacks. That's how I feel right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm very excited about our panel because we're going to talk a little bit about what is happening right now in two swing states that are are very likely to determine this election. Uh, if all goes the way it looks on a map right now, we don't know what's going to happen. But uh, I definitely want to talk about voter suppression. Uh, Chris Rabb, Representative Chris Rabb, is back. Uh, he is repping the 200th District in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania, uh, and we have Rachel Gilmer, who is the co-director of Dream Defenders, uh, to tell us a little bit about what's going on in Florida. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks for having us. So I want to start with just rep-rab uh, real quick because Philadelphia is on fire again. Um, let's just start off with that and, and this latest this latest shooting. Um, I mean, I don't know, Walter Wallace was shot uh, three days ago now, I believe. Um, he, instead of having somebody who could deal with a mental uh, illness situation, which happens a lot, right? Um, officers shot him, and uh, repeatedly. And of course, the streets are, people are out on the streets again, they're out on the streets in New York as well. Um, how's, how's everything looking in Philadelphia?
2: Bad. Um, this it doesn't stop with uh Walter Wallace Jr. uh in fact there's video that shows that police uh broke all the windows of an SUV uh that was just leaving just trying to get out of there not driving quickly pulled the woman out of the out of her car and took her baby this is
0: where's the baby now do we know
2: When asked, the commissioner, the police commissioner said she was not aware of the incident. It was captured on video. Um, I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, you have someone who's just trying to leave the scene, not driving quickly or anything, just trying to get out and protect their family. The car was stopped. All the windows smashed, forcibly pulling out the driver and her child, her. And we're not talking about a teenager. We're talking about a small child. Um, The video was shocking, and uh, protests have erupted, naturally. Um, And much of the corporate media is focusing on looting and not talking about police violence that begets more police violence. The response to peaceful protest is more police violence. And that is the issue that's not being addressed. And actually, um, as a result of that, I've expedited uh, introduction of legislation to address this issue um, by um, uh, a bill I've been working on off and on for three years. And I said, I got to move on it. So I'm introducing HB 2957 Pen which creates an independent intrastate body that is accountable to community stakeholders to provide all the services that police simply cannot and have not. And uh, this is actually backed by federal law that has not been enforced since 1953. And we have the power to do that um, in all states, but it requires leadership and vision and an understanding that these issues that we're talking about are symptoms of a larger systemic problem born of white supremacy and patriarchy and protecting the property of the elite. And the last time this happened in Philly, um, they protected the big box stores. Right. Right. All of whom have, you know, uh, business insurance and are going to do just fine. Um, But what we're really talking about is the looting of black and brown communities through public policy for generations.
0: That's right. It's interesting you say this because last yesterday uh, we had on activist and and world famous DJ uh, Tommy Sunshine, who has been out in New York, and he saw that video in Philadelphia after witnessing before his eyes. Very similar thing happened without taking the child in Brooklyn um where the same tactics were used and he saw police surrounding big box stores banks and you know he's been on the streets for the last 10 years since occupy before and he he mentioned that he had never seen these tactics used before and then to see it happen in philadelphia um which 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 is a segue and i i I wish we had more time to discuss this because this is such a hearty issue um but it is a segue into this election and the tactics of this administration using government agencies to suppress the vote. I mean, in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, there they have billboards up. DHS has billboards up um, about you know what claiming quote illegals uh, you know, should be afraid to vote, which is of course, what does that even mean? Um, and you know there's 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 voter suppression tactics specifically targeted at people of color. Uh, and immigrants across this country. So you know Rachel, you're working with dream Defenders and you guys are doing incredible work in Florida where I mean it's like ground zero of voter suppression. Um, can you just give us a, a breakdown of like the tactics right now being used in in Florida um, and then about your work?
3: Sure. Um, so yeah, I mean Florida, we've been under far right Republican trifecta control for the past 20 years. Um, And in that time, we've seen a rise in mass incarceration. We are number 50th in terms of access to health insurance and unemployment. And in the middle of the pandemic, you know, our governor was focused on um, tax write-offs to corporations instead of meeting the needs of people. And actually, our governor has his popularity rate, he only won by 20,000 votes in the last election, has gone down dramatically. Um, And his popularity rate, you know, has his popularity rate has gone down in the wake of the pandemic because of the failed response and so actually about a month ago uh he introduced uh legislation even though legislation legislative session doesn't even you know doesn't even start till next march around um this basically extreme anti-black lives matter bill um and the bill is around creating felonies for um you know people who are just doing basic protests automatic felonies eliminating bail um you know all uh you know mandatory minimums and so this was sort of a distraction tactic um, in order to rile up his base um and you know um you know by using this like dog whistle politics around criminalizing black people and criminalizing people who are protesting around racial justice in order to get his base riled up to turn out so you know our heart is really in philadelphia right now and we feel a lot of connection with what y'all are experiencing Um, (laughs) You, you had this bill, um, I mean,
0: this bill, you, there was a, a proposition that was passed, of course, to remind folks that uh, granted formerly incarcerated individuals to vote. And of course, the right wing has done everything they can um, to prevent those folks from voting by adding essentially a poll tax uh, to, to this. Can you, can you explain it a little bit more for us?
3: Yeah. So in 2018, the same year where our Republican governor won by 20,000 votes, Florida voters voted to repeal this Jim Crow era law that um, disenfranchised one in four black people by saying if you had a felony, you couldn't vote. So immediately, you know, this would have completely changed political power for our communities. In Florida, elections are won by 20,000 votes, 50,000 votes, like less than a percentage point you know, less than a Beyonce concert, like literally. <laughs> and one po- the infusion of 1.4 million voters into the electorate, that type of expansion would have completely changed the game in terms of what's possible for politics in Florida. And so the first thing the Republican governor did was pass legislation that mandated a poll tax. It was taken to court. Uh, they said that the poll tax was not legal and then that got challenged and now the court is upholding it. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, we've been basically fundraising to be able to pay off people's fees and fines, which they're also trying to challenge um, so that people have this basic right to vote. But yeah, I mean, I think the right wing knows their days are numbered in Florida. They know that we are building a long-term plan to expand the electorate, to get more and more people the access to ballot. And if that happens, that th- their days are numbered, you know? So they're doing everything they can in their power to um, stop Amendment 4 and to stop other efforts to expand the ballot and to get people out. Hmm. Um, Rep
0: Rab, is in the news every day. Yeah. I can't keep up, like, that's where I am right now. I'm what just gonna telling? let you take the floor. And what are they doing in Pennsylvania right now? Last time we talked, you know, there was this mail-in ballot, uh, went to the Supreme Court, it was... Di- I don't even know where we are, so can you catch us up to date?
2: sure as it stands so we your have voter support suppression support. update
0: By right, the way right. well, just, it's a new segment
2: right so as it stands this is the first time in pennsylvania history that we've had early voting it was a bipartisan bill that passed in october of 2019 um and it was so this was before we knew that there was a pandemic coming so it was completely bipartisan um what the, de- what the Republicans gained out of supporting this was getting rid of uh, straight ticket voting. Now, I don't know if they have that in Florida, but you could press one button and vote straight Republican or straight Democrat. Well, we've had that for years in Pennsylvania, and Republicans were concerned about holding on to their slim majorities in the House and Senate in Harrisburg. Were like, oh, if we decouple this, we might be able to save some incumbents. So that was, that was the price uh, Democrats paid for getting early voting. It was not called early voting. It was called mail-in, mail-in voting. But there was a provision in the law that kind of snuck in there very artfully by Democrats to allow for county uh, commissioners, election boards, to have satellite election offices set up before Election Day so people could drop off their mail-in ballot or pick one up and fill it out right then and there. So it was essentially early voting. And that's what's happened over the past about month. Uh, uh, for the yeah, I'd say past three or four weeks, the law allows for 50 days, up to 50 days, to vote before an election. But because of court challenges and logistics and money, we couldn't set up the infrastructure to create these satellite election offices. But since they've been up, the turnout has been extraordinary. And I represent, as you always like to hear me say, the the bluest dot in the entire Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in Northwest Philly. So I have a majority black district and a very civically engaged district. And we come out to vote and we are coming out in huge numbers such that whatever um, uh, chicanery and troublemaking that's happening by Republicans in other places, I think our turnout will far surpass whatever they're able to do in, in rural counties. But to your point, the latest uh, with regard to the court rulings is that the state Supreme Court um, allowed for ballots to be sent in and received up until the Friday after election day, as long as there's no postmark or it's postmarked by November third. All right?
0: Interesting. OK. Yeah, and,
2: signatures do not have to be identical to the signatures that are are signed, uh, put on the outer envelope of a Mm mail-in ballot and what's in the voter roll. So if I forget to put M for my middle initial, I won't be disqualified. So the Republicans came back at us again after the United States Supreme Court uh, had a four to four uh, ruling that says we're going to let this be. They came back again and said, get rid of all the ballots after November 3rd. Okay. And they did not allow that to happen, but they have another bite at the apple. So basically, we are now segregating ballots that come in after November 3rd. So we can start counting those ballots at 7 a.m. on November 3rd. This is why it's important for the entire country. If we get the first 100,000 mail in ballots counted in Philly alone, and it says 90% went to Biden. We know that the remaining 400,000 in Philly, it's 90% Biden, which means that we will know that 360,000 votes will have, we will have vote banked 360,000 votes or thereabouts, which means that on election night, when we have counted all the votes at the machines and Trump is up by 200,000, we know that, you know, we're going to blow them out of the water. So we may actually be able to predict who's won Pennsylvania without counting perhaps over half of all the ballots, because we will have known how Philly does, how Allegheny County, Montgomery County. And we'll also see what the turnout is in bright red spots. If bright red counties do the same or less than they did in 2016, we're definitely going to be able to call the election by midnight.
0: Rachel, I know you got to go in a couple of seconds, but um, can you just tell us about some of the work that you're doing right now in in fighting off the suppression at Dream Defenders and how people can help?
3: Yeah, so we're a part of a coalition called Florida for All, seven organizations that have come together and really figured out what is a long-term plan for building independent political power for our communities and actually building a long-term plan to transform the state. And so we um, have talked to 15 million voters so far this cycle. Um, We have a voter protection program getting out polls.
2: Uh-oh. Oh,
3: Oh, no. Oh, there she is. Okay. We know that... um, you know, Trump today actually held a rally at a polling site. You know, the law says you can't <laughs> Are you kidding? 150 feet. So he's like on the other side of the parking lot. So these are the type of tactics that are meant to make people scared to go out to the polls. There's also been Trump supporters that have showed up, you know, just to intimidate folks. And so we have a robust, poll protection program. Um, we have so many poll defenders that we actually barely know what to do with people. <laughs> so um, we just want to make sure voters know it is safe to go out. And if you want to volunteer to join our efforts to make calls, please, you know, go to FloridaForAll.Vote and and, and join our plan to, you know, get um, as many voters out as we can by election day and continue to organize after the election to transform the state. That's
2: right. Thank you, Rachel.
3: Yes, Rachel, you're doing incredible work. RepRab, rep, as always, incredible
0: work um thank you so much for just giving these updates because as man i mean like the map is really confusing i mean last time it was wisconsin it could be arizona texas is now in play georgia's and play pennsylvania and florida but we know two things it seems very clear that that whoever wins needs to win one of your two states hopefully both depending on the electoral map and so it's it's i think that's why you're seeing so much um so many of these tactics being used in both of your states so thank you all you know for your work and um you know, we're hoping that it, 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 that the numbers turn out and we can really pull this
2: through. Good luck, Rachel.
0: Good luck, Rachel. Thank you. Good luck, RepRab. Thank you. All right, guys, we got to wrap up today. Tomorrow we're going to go through some of our super chats. Um, I promise you uh, we will do so. Make sure to get those matriarch tickets if you haven't already. Starting at $27, an amazing lineup, Barbara Smith who coined the term uh, intersectional feminism. She was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. We have Cori Bush, of course. Uh, there's Sarah Nelson, the president of, of the Flight attendants Union. Jane McAlevey, in my opinion, probably the best organizer in the world and strategist in the world. Those are just a few of the names. You definitely want to check out that summit. We're going to talk about what it means for working women, and especially women of color, to be put forward um, in their policies first. And then also... How organizing around working women, especially if this election is delayed out in a potential like rolling strike or general strike, is important. Why that factor matters. And here's the teaser women on the front lines of COVID, teachers, uh, nurses, flight attendants, all women led union, and majority women uh, membership of unions. So you definitely want to check out that summit. There's going to be an action plan. Must to must see, must go to event, uh, of course, it's virtual. So make sure to check that out. That's tomorrow. Oh, wait, we do have the super chats up. Awesome, thanks guys for being patient on me uh, with me on that. Let's see who do we have here retro pathic thank you uh send trump back to the wwe let him fight vinnie Mac. i love it thanks to professor harvey k and everyone mixing it up in the live chat we've got a special interview with harvey k at patreon.com slash the nomi Keyshow where for as low as five bucks a month uh you can join us it's an extended interview about why bernie sanders should not be the labor secretary it's a fascinating conversation. We bring in history, uh, different theories of change, etc. And thank you to Midi Do- uh, Doctors for working the algorithms. And of course, Bob and Chokin for keeping the chat room honest for being our moderators. We will see you tomorrow. We have an amazing show. Wait, real, I'm going to give you a little plug. For Fem Friday, we have one of my favorite authors. I am kind of blown away that this is happening let's make sure i have the whole programming doc we're gonna have two people from matriarch come on to talk about the summit a little bit of a promo that is going to be in the um in the panel and then tithi Bhattacharya. i can never say her name who is the author of many books including feminism for the 99 she is on i am so excited and eager so you definitely want to check that out tomorrow at 3 p.m eastern right here youtube.com slash the nomi key show take care everyone